I think I can hold yeah. So uh, good morning once again, everyone. It's, it's uh, great to be <clears throat> back with you and this week, and it's great to be able to uh, jump in and uh, take this, uh, this morning's sermon. Um, we're in First Peter, as, as most of you know, um, chapter 1, and Mike, um, uh, Mike's sermon last week, he uh, began laying out the background for this epistle and kicked us off with the salutation, verses, verses 1 and 2. So, um, although both of Peter's epistles are quite brief, they're very rich, they're very dense, and without question, they're packed with important truths and doctrines, like they're just filled with, filled with these things, and it, I, it's one of my favorite books because of that. Um, but it's very real, too. Peter's very real uh, with who he is and what he's been through. And um, for me, that's powerful because it's um, because of the certainty and the assurance and the zeal that Peter exudes in these two short letters. They're, they're very short, but, but just it's, it's so encouraging. And I find Peter's story both amazing and personally hopeful. Because uh, he went from an uneducated, unbelieving fisherman to believe and leave and everything and then follow Jesus all of a sudden one day when he's on the shores of the sea um, with his fishing boat. Um, he met the fisher of men. The fisher man met the fisher of men. And being with, thereafter with Jesus for three plus years, he then failed miserably by denying him just before the cross. And to then... Um, he met, God met his need. He powerfully and courageously uh, returned uh, to Christ. He, uh, to courageously live and, and, and die loyally serving his Lord and his Savior. We're told by, um, as we heard last week, that he probably was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified the same way Jesus was. So there's that humility in him. And, and I too often have felt like I have disappointed my Lord not living with the obedience and faithfulness and assurance that God intends for me because I too often have failed him. Uh, perhaps not verbally denying him, but um, I have practically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually failed and denied my Lord numerous times um, in subtle ways, maybe in more profound ways. But how Jesus dealt with Peter and what he became because of Jesus' promises to him is so powerful, impactful, hopeful, and reassuring to me. So let's read uh, from First uh, Peter chapter 1, and we'll, we're going to actually read verses th- 3 through 12 for the context. So First Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by a fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you once again for giving us your word. Thank you for the insight you have given us from the perspective of a fisherman named Peter in this epistle, um, who you chose to be such a powerful example of what you can and will do in redeeming lost sinners. He was a man who had nothing but to offer but an impulsive and rebellious heart and attitude, much like ours. But by your mercy and grace, he became one of the 12 that you saved and used to change the world. He became a foundation stone in this new thing called the church. We're reminded of what, you, of what your son said uh, to your servant, Peter, you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You likewise desire to do similar things with our lives, too, if we are willing. Um, you also understand our struggles with our flesh, unbelief, sin, Satan, the world. And as we continue to seek to serve you here on earth as followers, and please help us now to understand and apply these things you have taught in these few verses um, to our lives today, and you know our weaknesses and our inabilities, as well as our fears, and um, just like you knew Peter's, but you have given us your salvation and your Holy Spirit to help us and empower us uh, to accomplish your will, and in our Lord Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. So in the first two verses, Peter begins his letter, uh, as, as Mike uh, unpacked last week, he, Peter begins his letter with a running start. Perhaps it might be described as a sprint. Um, he jumps right into it. He get right, gets right into um, um, some heavy stuff. But um, this you learned um, last week, and, uh, and, and a whole sermon pr- pretty much, apart from the outline, was created just with those two verses. And um, it was just the salutation, the greeting verses that, that has so much in them. But um, Peter doesn't waste time, and he begins getting to the heart of the matter. He details some key facts that ought to give us pause to carefully consider what he was saying as he introduces uh, truths about foreknowledge, predestination, the electing work of our Heavenly Father, and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit because of the obedient work of Jesus Christ, his Son. And as we learned last week, there are important themes taught by the Apostle in this epistle. Um, the sovereignty of God is, is one huge one um, in, in how he elects and redeems, how he regenerates those he redeems, um, and how he addresses the suffering of his redeemed children. Um, now, um, he addresses the reasons. Um, as he goes on, he addresses the reasons, the purposes for which the three persons of the God had went to these great lengths in redeeming sinners like us, uh, to provide uh, us with his great salvation and, and an inheritance. The recipients of this letter were suffering greatly, at the hands of both the Jewish establishment for turning from Judaism and the Roman rulers um, because they didn't like the Jews or the Christians for that matter. Um, they, these people severely suffered persecution even unto destitution, despair, and death. Um, Peter's purpose in this epistle is to encourage the believers of the dispersion, as we learned, uh, from, that were dispersed in different areas to whom he is writing to persevere and to stand firm in God's saving grace despite the persecution, reminding them of the certainty of their election. God's gracious love, 
their hope of inheritance, God's blessings now and in the future, and our ultimate triumph because of the obedience of his son, Jesus. One commentator uh, noted that verses 3 to 12, that, which we had just read, were penned by Peter grammatically as one long but profound run-on sentence. So I, can you imagine just knowing the impulsiveness of Peter that he couldn't stop talking, right? He, he had to keep going, and he had a lot of great things to say. Um, so um, that's why I read those, um, to, to maintain context. And um, these 10 verses uh, in, together describe the certainty of the believer's salvation which is a great comfort to us, I hope. Um, First, by describing how salvation is kept or preserved by God's power. Secondly, how salvation is proven by God's power. And thirdly, how the prophets God sent predicted the certainty of this plan of salvation, God's plan and work of redemption. So if you're taking notes, the first was describing how salvation is kept by God's power. The second is how salvation is proven by God's power. And the third is how the prophets sent, how, how the prophets God sent uh, predicted the certainty of his plan of salvation. This morning we can, we're only going to be able to look at verses 3 to 5 because there's so much in it, but, um, but they do detail how our certain salvation is kept by the power of God. So reading verses 3 to 5, once again, just to remind us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. With regard to these three verses, um, Jermaine already mentioned R.C. Sproul, um, his commentary, which I um, was going through recently, and he notes something he learned from his mentor in uh, seminary when Professor uh, G.C. Burkauer, some of you may know him, he's a, he's a classic a theologian, very highly regarded, uh, he commented to him when he was over doing his grad work that all sound theology must begin and end with doxology. This is something Jermaine already mentioned, but... What Peter pens in verses 3 to 5 here to begin his epistle is clearly doxology. You know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he starts right off uh, praising God. And um, for anyone not familiar, as, as we just, he, Jermaine just noted, um, doxology is considered a hymn of praise. And um, such is intended to ascribe glory to God. It is to give God genuine worship because of who he is in character, what he's done in his work, and in his personhood, uh, who he is. And therefore, we need to attribute his worth to him because of all these things. Peter begins verse 3 by blessing and praising God. He does so because of the profound awe that he has personally acquired by his witness and experience. He spent this time with God in the flesh. He saw so many things, and he failed, and and God graciously drew him back. So he now comprehends this salvation and what God has done in his work of redemption through this man he met from Galilee on the seashore who he didn't know that one day, Jesus of Nazareth. Peter's joy overflows because of these things. Peter's response provides such a profound testimony, one that we ought to pay attention to and imitate ourselves. His teaching is particularly relevant because 
the readers he is addressing are so severely persecuted at, at this time in history. And it's, they're persecuted because of Jesus and because of these apostles, probably amplified much more by Peter himself. So I don't know if this is an apology letter in a way. I don't think so, but you wonder what was going through his head. I don't think he was apologizing for telling the truth, but, but Peter's preaching the gospel and the other apostles was making their life very difficult for the other believers in the community. Peter contrasts the persecution they are experiencing in the present with the eternal inheritance that is certain for them. His desire is that they might worship and praise God in their circumstances in which they find themselves right now, which will surely perplex those who are causing their persecution. And as regular readers of the New Testament, we might quickly read these verses, skimming the title that Peter uses as he addresses his praise to Christ. He said, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We take that for granted, but his readers would certainly pause here because the Jewish readers traditionally referred to God as their creator, as their deliverer, or as their redeemer. Such titles were used based on the context of the situation they were in at the time. Often the title used to address God had reference to a certain situation um, because, say, uh, a nation had surrounded them and was going to try to take them out, or, um, or because a battle had started on another front, because they were um, kicked out of a land they were occupying at the time. Um, now, Peter is addressing Yahweh not only as God, but additionally he associates him with, uh, as the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we know this went, didn't go over very well with the Jewish leaders upon hearing the claim of equality with God at, at another uh, point in the Gospels where we read the grief and the hatred they, the Jewish leaders had for him equating himself with, with, the, with God as his father. So um, when we read of how Jesus repeatedly addressed God as his father, it was to emphasize that they both shared the same divine nature, certainly. Um, being fully God in the flesh, it attests to his deity. The other important thing we note here is the title Peter uses, Lord Jesus Christ. This is Jesus' full redemptive name. Lord, meaning that he identifies, Lord identifies him as the sovereign ruler. Jesus identifies him as the incarnate son. Christ identifies him as the Messiah and king. So all these attributes, all these roles together, give him the rightful title of Lord Jesus Christ. I love using this title to address him because of what it respectfully conveys from what I just mentioned, but... Uh, and it, it made me reflect because many years ago as a new believer, that was quite a while ago now, but I obtained one of the first digital Bibles when the internet wasn't a thing and Bible software packages didn't exist like they do today. So somebody gave me the Bible on floppy disks, I believe they were, and um, if you don't know that, we'll t- explain later, but, um, and spent many hours searching the scriptures, looking for patterns. And uh, interestingly, I still clearly remember noticing that Jesus' full redemptive title, Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't appear in the Gospels at all. It only appears, begins to appear in Acts and beyond, when the apostles and the disciples start referring to him post-resurrection with the full reverence he is due, using each of his rightful titles together. And by the way, Lord Jesus Christ appears 63 times from Acts through to Revelation. 
So if you ever want to do that study, now that you have the internet, you can do all kinds of neat searches and find these patterns. But to me, that's profound because it, it means something. It was intentional. God the Spirit did that on purpose. Uh, he knew what he was doing. And, and in my estimation, it makes sense because prior to his resurrection, all three titles could not be combined yet to properly address him because he hadn't finished the work of the Father. Once he finished the work of the Father, you could put those titles together, right? And also note that Peter says he is our Lord Jesus Christ. It is personal to us, and it is truly only applicable to the believer to use this title in its truest sense. The creator of the universe is our sovereign Lord. The Son of Man, Jesus, is our risen Savior. The Christ of God is our Messiah and anointed King who gives us his inheritance. Peter next notes that our salvation is according to his great mercy. Mercy is the driving motive that God employs to provide us with eternal life and his inheritance. The very life of the Father, Son, and Spirit is now our possession. We must be, be very mindful here of what Paul clearly reminded us of in his letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, where he writes, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Before obtaining eternal life, by faith, through God's mercy and grace, we were dead. What can dead people do? Absolutely nothing. This is a critical point because, as Mike noted regarding election in verses 1 and 2, we would not and could not come to God for our salvation apart from him instigating and drawing us to himself. Sometimes that's controversial for people. I'm glad to talk with people anytime about this because I've gone through this journey myself. But um, bear with me as we go through this. But sure, we choose to make, him a, make a decision. We choose and we make a decision, but not until God starts the process in our hearts. Um, we'll speak more of that when we get to verse 5. But... We're, describing as, we're described as dead because dead things have no power within themselves. Zero ability to do anything. I have heard and perhaps believed as a new follower that there was at least a tiny kernel of goodness and desire within me to look for salvation, to pursue forgiveness, to choose and believe and follow Christ. But as I kept reading scripture through the years and as God kept teaching me about myself and my sin, this became problematic uh, when I saw my truly wretched and utterly sinful state and my inability considering and contrasting to his holiness and his majesty. Only then did God's mercy and grace make sense and became ultimately comforting. And as I read stuff like the Gospel of John, God's sovereignty was everywhere, and it made even more sense, and, and other scriptures. So um, don't be afraid to take that journey. Don't be afraid to understand how God works in redeeming you. Um, scripture teaches us that our hearts are deceitful, Jeremiah 17.9. Our minds are corrupt, Romans 8, 7 and 8. And our desires are evil, Titus 1.15. Praise God for his mercy and grace because of these things. Sometimes people can confuse the terms mercy and grace as synonymous. I think that I've heard People say that, and I probably was there too, but they're not the same thing. So if you hear mercy and grace, they're not synonyms. Uh, I remember having this confusion as a new believer when I, God saved me, um, and I started going to church and 
reading my Bible, I started to learn that there's all these new terms, that, new concepts that come up. There's mercy, there's grace, there's faith, there's repentance, there's sanctification, there's justification, there's regeneration, there's propitiation, and there's probably a lot more Asians of whatever, whatever that is. Um, what do they mean and how do they relate to another, one another was the next question, even if I do have a definition, right? But mercy relates to our sinful condition. It means not getting what we deserve from God with respect to our sin, but instead we get what we don't deserve from God, a change of our condition to become acceptable before him. And grace relates to the guilt of our sin and its removal, where we are acquitted of all charges before holy God. Our position before him has changed when it comes to grace because of what he accomplished in obtaining our redemption. So mercy relates to our sinful condition. Grace relates to the guilt of our sin, and and it changes our position. God exercises his mercy towards us, not based on any merit of our own. Um, I think we all understand that and believe that, but it's only based on his sovereign compassion and, and choice to have mercy on us. We can't do anything to earn it. We don't deserve it. He simply chose to grant mercy to us. The end of verse 3 says, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through Christ's resurrection. Since we cannot change our own default sinful condition, he takes charge and deals with it by his mercy and grace. Our nature must be changed, and only God, by the work of his Son and his Spirit, can ensure that our sin is removed, forgiveness is granted, and our hearts are changed. When we are transformed spiritually, this is what we call a new birth. The term new birth or born again, as we're familiar with, always reminds me of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It, of course, is where the world's best-known verse originates, John 3.16, of course. Being born again, as the term implies, means starting over. In theological terms, it is what we refer to as regeneration. Regeneration is the means God uses to bring us to himself. I'll repeat that. God, uh, by God's design, regeneration is the means God uses to bring us to himself. As one commentator notes, regeneration is what provokes and plants faith in our souls. Regeneration is what provokes and plants faith in our souls. Faith is the fruit of regeneration. Oftentimes people get that backwards. They'll say faith comes first. I think if you study scriptures, you'll, you'll soon see that regeneration comes first, first and faith is the fruit of it. It is part that follows regeneration where we acknowledge our sin and our need for salvation and repent. Too often people try to replace to place uh, faith before regeneration and there's a critical problem here. The dead and natural things cannot ascend to the supernatural and living things. We, as dead in our sins and trespasses and in our fleshly, sinful nature, cannot ascend to and interact with the supernatural. We don't have the ability. Our rescue starts with God taking action in our life. Our spiritual birth is a supernatural event. We don't generate our faith or our salvation. God acted in creation. God acted by his spirit to cause a virgin to become pregnant with Jesus. God acted to regenerate your soul. 
there's a, there's a pattern here. It isn't us. It doesn't suddenly change to us acting and choosing to seek forgiveness and choosing to be saved one day. Um, that's, there's, we can nuance it, but that, there's a, God has his pattern here, right? We must recognize that our sin leads only to spiritual death, death that is eternal. We must be regenerated spiritually by faith in the person and work of Christ alone. This gives us a living hope. Our living hope of eternal life is only obtained, it's only appropriated by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. He being raised physically from death to life means we are spiritually raised from death to life. Verse 4 speaks of us obtaining an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. I have mentioned inheritance several times um, so far, I guess, and, and yet have provided no real understanding of what it entails. Um, we all likely have some ideas of what inheritance would be. It's usually referring to wealth, um, uh, monetary wealth and property that is passed down to us upon the death of a family member, maybe a grandparent or a parent, or, or maybe someone else who's close to us. Maybe they, we inherit something from an aunt or a friend or a neighbor. Um, in Old Testament days, it is referred to um, the, the land promised by God is in, uh, to the nation of Israel is an inheritance. Uh, the nation that often came from their enemies, such as Canaan, uh, the land of Canaan, and uh, you know, the promised land, and etc. But now for the New Testament church and the born-again followers of Christ, the inheritance Peter speaks of is the promise of eternal life and all that it entails. Ultimately, gaining Christ himself is our inheritance. So the pattern was set in the Old Testament. It's fulfilled in the New Testament. Um, but until we receive the promised inheritance, which is the eternal blessing of every true follower of Christ, we are to persevere and we are to grow in our spiritual maturity. We have a job to do until that time. Remember, we have a living hope, and that which is living implies growth. Living plants, animals, and humans continue to grow. Likewise, a person who was formerly dead and without hope in their sins and trespasses, they now possess life, eternal life, which begins now upon regeneration and faith, not at the time of death. As growth is mandatory, this is the process of sanctification and spiritual maturity. This is what discipleship is about. This is why discipleship is so important. The process of sanctification and spiritual maturity is a growth process till the day you die. It comes through uh, meeting with God, your times with God. It comes with meeting with fellow believers uh, in discipleship or, or both, God and your fellow believers here. Um, in this verse, we note that, note that there's three adjectives that Peter applies to our inheritance. He says it's imperishable, meaning that which is incorruptible and cannot, cannot die, cannot perish. Earthly inheritance of every type can be corrupted and will decay or perish eventually, but our inherit, eternal inheritance cannot be destroyed, lost, or revoked. Undefiled, meaning that which cannot be stained, tainted, or become defective. Our inheritance is without blemish. It's perfect. It can't be defiled. Unlike the Old Testament concerns with ceremonial defilement, we always hear about that in um, you know, Leviticus and such, that, that there's ceremonial undefilement, or, or defilement, I should say, and um, that would even carry on through the New Testament writings. Um, 
And unlike the Old Testament concerns with ceremonial defilement, God's perfect work of redemption is and remains and always will be um, undefiled. Unfading, meaning it will not decay or fade away like a beautiful plant or a flower that eventually loses its bloom. Uh, Our inheritance will not lose any of its glory, greatness, or splendor. And these three attributes are unalterable characteristics of our inheritance. But how can we be certain of its security? We already know that earthly inheritance has no guarantee of being ours due to circumstances, sometimes within our control, but often unforeseen and beyond our control. Peter now confirms that our eternal inheritance is absolutely secure. We read that it is kept or reserved in heaven for us, and that we are guarded or protected by God's power through faith. So how could it be? How could it not be secure? Peter's readers would have had seriously worried about remaining faithful because of the persecution they were facing and the suffering they were enduring. So here is he is assuring them of who is guarding them. Yahweh himself is guarding them. He is the source of energy and power that is being continuously applied in this guarding. There is great comfort in knowing that he is watching and keeping and providing for his children whom he loves with the same depth of love that he loves his very son, his own son. How is he doing it? It is through our faith. Interesting, isn't it? It is through our faith. Our faith is the means by which God is guarding us and sustaining us. Let me say that again. It is through our faith. Our means, our faith is the means by which God is guarding us and sustaining us. Being mindful that faith is God's keeping power working in us. God's Faith is God's keeping power working in us. God is always guarding us, even though, even through suffering, yeah, to uh, per- persevere, to, sorry, to preserve us for salvation, um, of course, to persevere. Um, he is always there, accomplishing his purposes by his power through our faith. That's the communion we have with him. That's us doing our part, but he gives us the power to 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 have faith even. It's, it's kind of crazy when you start to unpack it. It, it sounds a little complex, but it, it's really neat how God has designed this. And no one else can take it away or modify our inheritance, including ourselves. Think back to Matthew chapter 6 that we studied many months ago. Uh, Jesus told us not to store up treasures on earth which are subject to destruction and theft, but rather in heaven where it is 100% secure because of both the nature of the location and the character of the one who is the protector of it. This, again, is a true and living hope for the believer, giving us the assurance of heaven with joy and motivation to persevere when things get extremely hard for us. When we have enduring faith, this is evidence that God is at work in us, is keeping us, is protecting our faith. God initiates and empowers our faith to start changing our hearts towards him, but he continues to energize our faith. His power combined with our effort following salvation to help us persevere, working together as he keeps us in Christ. I've shared uh, Colossians 1 with several of our men um, in discipleship recently, uh, and it fits very well here with respect to suffering, perseverance, effort, and the hope of glory. 
in uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 29, Paul writes, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The key to this for me is verse 29. And part of 28, actually, uh, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That, that's a, a major goal. That's a goal that we have as church leaders and um, as believers. For this I toil. So Paul didn't say let go and let God in that sense. He said... For this I toil. Toil means to work really hard. And I, he struggled. Paul struggled. This profound uh, man of God struggled with all his energy. Interesting. Not his own energy. With all his. With all of energy that God gave. God's energy. That he, God, powerfully works within me. So he is doing the work. He is toiling. He is struggling. But the source is God again. Which I, I find is just like... Amazing, and I'm so glad that is. I'm so glad it's not on me to provide the energy. So, what is the objective? What purpose do what purpose do our inheritance and the security God provides have? Are they meant for us to experience the fullness? Aren't they meant for us to experience the fullness of salvation that is yet to be revealed? Um, that's what we just read from Peter. Um, salvation is a word we hear often and use often. But I'm not sure everyone understands what it actually means. And so at its root, salvation is about the concept. It's, it's about our rescue. Salvation is about rescuing. Uh, rescue from sin, self, Satan, the fallen world we're in, and God's wrath against all that, um, all that's not holy. It's about gaining complete deliverance from these afflictions and experiencing perfect peace and joy in the presence of a personal and holy God. And salvation actually has three aspects to it. In the past perspective, we're justified uh, upon believing in Christ and are delivered from the penalty of sin, which is eternal death and punishment, of course. Um, we're made righteous and we are legally acceptable in God's eyes. So the past is about justification. In the, pre in the present, we're being sanctified. We just talked about that. We're, in the present, we're being sanctified. This is the aspect where we are being delivered continuously from the power of sin that has enslaved us. It's not one and done. It's not, I confessed Christ, I believed, and, and we're good to go, and I don't have struggles. This, 
we're constantly being delivered from the power of sin that is enslaved, that tries to enslave us. And once again, we were enslaved. It continues to try to enslave us with our flesh, but, but we have a power now to resist. We're delivered from the, not only the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. Um, in the future, salvation includes glorification. One day we will be delivered from the penalty, power, and presence of sin and will inherit the blessings, the joy, the riches of Christ and his presence for all of eternity. Our redemption will be consummated in full when the last times are finally here, when Christ returns for his own. Christ is our inheritance. For the Levites, the priestly tribe, the Lord was their inheritance, if you remember that. They couldn't possess land, they couldn't possess property, but they, their, their inheritance was the Lord himself. Likewise, for us as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, we are now a royal priesthood, as Peter tells us later in chapter 2. Christ is our inheritance. Um, as believers who walk this earth here and now, we experience some of the benefits of salvation, not all of them, of course, but our redemption is not yet fulfilled for us. The glorious inheritance and fulfillment of our redemption awaits us in the eternal presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We genuinely cannot fathom the depth and beauty of what waits us because of his mercy, grace, and great love for us. The source of our inheritance is Jesus through his resurrection and our new birth as he keeps us secure and makes our eternal destiny certain. We indeed have a true and living hope. Let's praise him and give him his worth. Heavenly Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for your servant Peter, who has, uh, knows what it's like to be a failure, but knows what it's like to become a victor because of what his Lord has done for him. And that he learned to rely on that and, and nothing within himself to be faithful and obedient and to be bold and courageous and to loyally serve you and to honor you and to be joyful in the journey despite suffering and persecution because he, it, the hope that he knew he had in his heart was so far greater than anything that can uh, bring us down here and that we can experience here even when it's extremely difficult. Our hope is beyond our comprehension and our salvation and our inheritance are profound. Um, help us to keep these things in our mind this week as we would live our lives for you, as we would be witnesses and testimony for you and reach out and have courage and boldness to share the hope of the gospel so that other people can have the journey like Peter has had and like we have had and that we can maybe do that with them. We can journey with them in, in that glorious inheritance and that glorious hope and all the while we'll praise him and give him his worth. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.